not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the, follow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would you join me in praying? Oh God, we thank you this morning on Palm Sunday for the beautiful privilege to pause and remember what kind of God you are. We thank you for the beautiful privilege of pausing and remembering your compassion, your mercy, your kindness, and your nearness to us, Lord God. So I pray, Lord, come Holy Spirit, come. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin our time this morning together with a question. And the question is this. Have you ever found yourself questioning the exclusive claims of Jesus? You know, Jesus clearly taught that he is the only way for someone to escape God's judgment. He is the only way to be reconnected to God, period. Jesus says in John 14, 6, it says the following. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, as a Christian, logically, it's easy enough to understand that Jesus is the only way. We know that God is our maker, like a potter, and we are his clay. And we know that he owes us nothing. He he is the potter. We're the clay. He made us. We know as followers of Jesus that we've wronged him and that we rightly deserve his judgment. And we've come to understand and appreciate something of the amazing beauty of his sacrifice for us upon the cross. But when you 
pause and consider the sheer scale of people who do not know or love the Lord Jesus, it can leave you feeling something like overwhelmed. And it can cause you to begin to question God's heart. You know, in late 2004 on Boxing Day, there was a huge tsunami. And that huge tsunami killed about 230,000 people globally, including 176,000 people in one place in Indonesia called Banda Aceh. And I was privileged to go there and to live there and serve people there for about two years from 2008 and 2009. But the thing is, there are roughly four million people that live in Aceh. And 99.85% of those people are Muslim. In fact, of those 99.85% of Muslim people, of the 4 million people, sorry, in Aceh, less than 0.01% of those people are evangelical Christians. And therefore, according to the Bible, the vast majority of those who perished died without the Lord Jesus. They had to face the judgment of God without his sacrificial death, without his righteous life. And that is something really difficult to understand. And that is something that can leave you to begin to question Jesus in what he says. But maybe the exclusive claims of Jesus present challenges to you even closer to home. Maybe for you it's that beloved grandma who was such a lovely person who passed away without Christ. Maybe it's the spouse who doesn't love the Lord. Maybe it's the kids who've walked away. Maybe it's a really close friend. Maybe it's the Muslim or Hindu colleague that seems way more generous and way more compassionate than you. And the feeling it can leave you with, the question it can impress upon you is, does God even care? Does he care that there are so many people who are perishing? I mean, maybe you're not yet following Jesus. And I just want to say, if that's you this morning, a warm welcome. We're a church that welcomes everyone. And and we just trust you feel welcome with us this morning. But maybe this is one of your objections to becoming a Christian. If Jesus is the only way to God, doesn't that seem to suggest he doesn't care about all of the billions of people in the world that are not Christians? Well, if you ever wrestled with questions like these... I believe our passage today is just for you. I believe God wants to address us and address us with this question of whether he cares. If you're making notes this morning, I've entitled this message, A Lament for the Lost. And I've got three points, uh, three simple points that come from the text this morning. But one hope for us in our time, which I believe is the burden of this passage, and that is we would see the Lord Jesus' deep compassion for sinners and draw near to him. The Lord isn't distant. He isn't carefree when it comes to sinners. He has deep compassion. And I believe the call of this passage upon us this morning is to therefore draw close to him, especially as we lead up to Easter. So let's dive right into the passage with point number one, the narrow door. You know, just by way of context, if you're new to this series uh, of Luke's gospel or you're new to the Bible, Jesus is continuing his long journey towards his death on the cross in Jerusalem with Luke documenting events as he travels along the way. 
having warned repeatedly about the need to be ready for judgment in chapters 12 and 13. Last week, we saw Jesus display the beauty of the coming kingdom in healing a woman who'd been bent over for 18 years during Sabbath worship in a synagogue. And Jesus explains to the congregation that the arrival of the kingdom of God may seem insignificant. Its growth is however, unstoppable. It's like a mustard seed in size, seemingly. It's like yeast in dough that spreads and raises the whole lump of dough. It is unstoppable, though at times imperceivable in its action. And so having said this, we dive into our passage in verse 22. Why don't you read that with me again? Verse 22, it says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus has left the synagogue and he's traveling, and it's an undefined period of time that's passed. He's likely now in Galilee, which is King Herod's jurisdiction, and King Herod apparently, we'll find out later on, wants to kill him. And yet Jesus' gaze is still fixed on Jerusalem. It's the goal of his travels. Luke recounts a person asking Jesus one of the hot-button issues of the day, which is how many people are going to be saved. You see, the Bible of Jesus' day, which is what we would call the Old Testament of the Bible, taught that the day of the Lord is coming, a day when all of the dead will be raised back to life and will be judged by God, and some people will be punished with death, and others will be rescued or saved. And some rabbis taught in Jesus' day that all Israelites have a share in the world to come. And others taught that God had made the world to come or the kingdom of God to come only for the sake of a few. Now, since Jesus had a pretty pretty radical teaching and only a handful of disciples, you could see how someone could think, maybe Jesus only believes a few will be saved. And so we read the following in verse 24. Jesus says this. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Jesus says, strive to enter. That word actually more literally translated translates to fight, to struggle, to engage in a contest of athletes. Jesus is saying that following him and entering to God's kingdom involves a fight. It involves a struggle. Now, before we read on to unpack what that means, we need to make a a couple of important clarifications to make sure we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. First of all, Jesus is not teaching against the sovereignty of God in salvation. In John's gospel, in John chapter 3, he clearly teaches that that people that would follow Jesus need a spiritual birth. They need to be changed by the Holy Spirit in order to come to know and follow him. He also teaches in John chapter 6 that the Father ultimately leads people to Jesus himself. So Jesus is not teaching against that. He's not teaching that God is not sovereign in saving people. Secondly, Jesus is also not teaching that we're forgiven by our own personal efforts. You know, later in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 23, uh, Jesus 
uh, is next to a thief on a cross who's been crucified next to Jesus. And he simply repents of how he's been living and appeals to Jesus. And Jesus replies with this. He says, truly I say to you that today you will be with me in paradise. You see, this thief on the cross was dying and he had no opportunity to earn his forgiveness. Jesus is not saying that we're forgiven by our efforts. Well, what does Jesus mean by saying, fight to enter through the narrow door? Well, Jesus is simply describing the call to follow him from our human perspective. He's saying it's difficult. It involves a fight. It involves a wrestle. It involves a struggle. In other words, Jesus is saying something similar to what he said in chapter 9, verse 23, when he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, Jesus' call to discipleship is extreme. And I think we often miss that because we're so familiar with his language, we lose how shocking it is. What Jesus is saying is like this. It's equivalent to saying, pick up your rope, put on your black hood, and follow me to the hangman's noose. It's equivalent to saying, or get dressed in your orange jumpsuit, pick up your straps, and follow me to the electric chair. He's saying, follow me in my example of self-sacrifice out of love for God and others. And he's saying it's not easy. It involves a fight. It involves a struggle. It involves a wrestle. You know, John Calvin, 500 years ago, puts it this way. He says, when he bids them to strive or labor, he conveys the information that it is impossible to obtain eternal life without great and appalling difficulties. And it's true, the call to discipleship is difficult. Now I hope that this is a sobering reminder to all of us this morning. Regardless of whether you've been following Jesus for many years, or even just considering starting out. Eternal life and the call of Jesus is impossible to obtain without great difficulty. The path of discipleship is difficult. But more than striving or fighting or wrestling to enter, Jesus says fight to enter the narrow door. Okay, what does that mean? What what is he going on about, about this narrow door? Well, we learn some clues from a similar passage in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, enter by the narrow, there's the same word again, gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter in or enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The narrow and wide gates are held in parallel with opposite meanings. The wide gate and path is found by many and is easy to travel on. It leads to destruction. But the narrow gate and path is found by few. And it's hard to travel on. But it leads to life. Jesus is saying that the doorway to the kingdom of God is easily overlooked. And it's only ever found by few. And it's difficult to pass through. You know, Jesus has been asked by this man, how many people will be saved 
And this man was perhaps hoping for a softening of the requirements of discipleship, hoping that Jesus would say, oh, well, actually, you know, it's not that bad. It's not that, you know, it's pretty easy. You know, kind of anyone can kind of do it. But Jesus is instead throwing the question back by saying, in effect, discipleship is hard. Will you be saved? Many will seek to enter but won't be able to because the path is hard and the door is narrow. It's easily overlooked. And that is point number one, the narrow door. Jesus wants us to see that the path of discipleship involves difficulty and struggle. It's easily overlooked and few people find it. Not just point number one, the narrow door, but point number two, the near but unknown. You know, if what Jesus is saying is true about the narrow door, that many are unable to pass through, the obvious question becomes, how can I know if I've passed through the narrow door? How can I know if I'm in? Well, Jesus is going to keep painting a powerful picture to try and help us understand. And the image is of a grand house with the master of the house having opened the front door. But the door is narrow. But the master of the house, which we learn represents Jesus himself, has left this narrow door open. Soon, however, the master will close and bolt the door, which means that there's a limited time remaining only. And so we read the following in verses 25 through to 27. Jesus says this. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you will begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and we taught and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You know, Jesus, having painted this picture of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven like an open door in a stately home, goes on to describe a person who arrives at the home too late. And the person arrives and knocks, calling out to the master who represents Jesus. And the master replies, I don't know who you are. And the visitor answers, but I was in your presence and I was eating and drinking and you, you taught in my neighborhood. And the master's response is, I don't know you. Go away, you worker of evil. You know, this teaching of Jesus should be a sobering reminder to all of us present. Just as it was possible for people to have been near to Jesus without being true disciples, it's possible to be near to the community of Jesus without being a true follower of Jesus. It's possible to be someone who on the outside looks very religious. You attend church every week, you serve, you don't seem to have any of those rough edges, you give a tithe, but still, you are not a follower of Jesus. See, the truth is, doing good doesn't make you a Christian. Christianity is the one religion where it is not possible to be born into it. No one is a true follower of Jesus simply by birth. Religious observation does not make a person a Christian. You could have been attending church your whole life and still not be a genuine believer. Just like it's been famously said that in the same way as going to Macca's doesn't make you a hamburger, going to church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. It doesn't happen to you by osmosis. And Jesus highlights two reasons why 
the person who comes late to the house will be excluded. And the first is this. They're excluded because the master does not know them. You see, to be a Christian is to be known by Jesus. The Bible teaches that when a person turns from their sins and and puts their trust in Jesus, a radical transformation occurs through the Holy Spirit as it comes in and fills their heart and they become joined to Jesus. And it leads to this radical transformation. You may have heard the expression to be born again. It's like being born for the first time as a child, as a new spiritual person, beginning this relationship with God through Jesus. Put another way, because of the Holy Spirit, a Christian is deeply known by Jesus. He's become one of his followers and he shares a common heart with Jesus. So this person is excluded because the master does not know them. That's the first reason. But the second reason is they're excluded because they do not, in fact, actually follow Jesus. He says, depart from me, you workers of evil. You see, a Christian is someone who's come to love and trust Jesus. And because a Christian loves and trusts Jesus, they they deeply desire to follow Jesus. That's not to say that a Christian is perfect. I mean, we all know just as anyone else, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that we're all deeply flawed people. But a true Christian's desire will be to follow, to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. See, a Christian does not perform good works to be accepted by God. A Christian is someone who has found forgiveness in Jesus and so deeply loves and admires this Jesus that they desire to follow his example. In the words of John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I think so much of our misunderstanding about what it means to follow Jesus comes from our misunderstanding about the word believe in this most famous of verses. You know, we often take believe in our culture to mean just agree with the facts. It's this idea that you can have a ticket to heaven if you simply believe in the facts about Jesus and live how you please. The problem is, as has been often pointed out, that the devil believes the facts about Jesus. And so you could be a devil and believe the facts about Jesus. Because it's only part of this, what this word believe in actually means. A true follower of Jesus believes the facts about Jesus. Yes, they believe in his life and death and resurrection. But they also have a personal trust in him. They trust his claim to have authority over their life, their possessions, their bodies. And they're committed to following his example despite their personal failings. A follower of Jesus, when confronted with a word from Jesus that challenges how they're living, has a heart that will say, okay, Lord, I love you, I trust you, help me follow. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So Jesus, in sending away this person from his household, identifies both that he does not have a relationship with him, and secondly, that he's not a genuine believer in him. He's not a genuine follower. But Jesus doesn't leave the image here. He he wants to move on to highlight the dreadful plight of those who do not enter the narrow door. Read with me verse 28, 3 to 30. It says the following. Jesus goes on, he says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south to recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. See, Jesus helps those listening in to see that many, in fact, will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But not the people you would imagine. 
The picture Jesus paints is of a great banquet with guests reclining at the table in the house of the Lord. And all the heroes of the faith are there, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. And they're joined by people from all the four corners of the earth. You know, Revelation tells us that it'll be every nation and tribe and, and language in the world represented at this banquet. But this person is cast outside and can only look in from the darkness as people stream in from all around the world. And here's the question that it brings to my mind immediately. But what does this person watching from the darkness feel? Well, Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be great tearful sorrow for those who are excluded from God's kingdom. But more than that, gnashing of teeth. I had to look up what this means this week because I've never actually really known what gnashing of teeth means. But uh, it's a word that can refer to the chattering of teeth with cold or the clenching of teeth with pain. But most commonly, the grinding of teeth with anger. Those left to look on at the unfolding banquet within the kingdom of God will be both deeply upset and filled with anger. Those excluded from God's kingdom will continue to protest their innocence even after God's final judgment. There is no evidence of repentance. You see, to understand what is happening here, we need to listen to Jesus' description of the reason for which he's come in the first place. He says in chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, or it says the following, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. And Jesus explains he's come for the sake of those who are spiritually sick. He's come to bring them back to God, to lead them to repentance. And Jesus is being ironic in referring to those who have no need of a physician because because they're well, because the Bible teaches that we're all unwell. We're all sinners. There is no such thing as a person who does not need his spiritual healing. You see, for Jesus, the question is not, do you need Jesus' healing? But can you see that you're sick? This is the reason why the door to the kingdom of heaven is narrow. It is not because Jesus is making it difficult for people to enter. The door is narrow because we are so blinded to our condition. We don't think we need it. The vast majority of us are no different to the Pharisees in that we do not believe we need healing from God. We are good people. And so rather than trying to enter through the narrow door, we'd actually prefer to go through the sliding door out the back. We're demanding that the master open the window or cut a hole in the side of the wall. And so Jesus helps us to see that even those who have been refused entry and sit in the darkness watching the feast unfold remain protesting their innocence, filled with rage against the king for leaving them out. You know, people often say and think that hell or eternal torment seems incredibly harsh. But the thing is, there is no repentance in hell. People continue on in their opposition to the things of God for all eternity. Because naturally our hearts are so hardened against God. You know, the famous writer C.S. Lewis uh, puts it the following way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
All that are in hell, choose it. You know, this warning should have a humbling effect on us this morning. This warning should also lead all of us to honestly ask the question, am I among those who are near but unknown to Jesus? Am I just a cultural Christian? Do I simply attend with my parents or friends? Have I simply been going through the motions every Sunday, but without a genuine desire to follow Jesus? But it also has something to say to those who have been putting off the decision to follow Jesus. When I finish my studies, when the kids leave home, when I get married. There's a great urgency here. Because you do not know when the door will close. He stands at the door. He's calling you in. But one day, that door will close. Not just point number two, the near but unknown. Finally, point number three, the Savior's compassion. I think it would be incredibly easy at this point to think the Lord Jesus is being harsh in telling this parable. It would be incredibly easy to miss the tone, to think it's one of scolding. But the reality is, in fact, his tone is actually one of great sorrow and lament. And the reason we can tell this is that Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 6. The writer of Psalm 6, King David, says the following. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And here Jesus quotes, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. See, Jesus is quoting David who speaks out of great grief from the opposition he's receiving. It's the context of great tears of weeping and grief that he cries out, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. See, the master stands at the door to his home, but with his eyes filled with tears. He stands pleading for people to enter, and eventually he will close the door. But if there was any doubt as to the Lord Jesus' disposition towards those who don't know him, it will be completely dispelled as we read on the following in verse 31 to 33. Let's keep reading our passage. Luke writes, at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And some Pharisees come to Jesus to warn him of Herod's attention to kill him. It's unclear what their intention is. Intention is Maybe it's just to scare him away, or it might have been well-intentioned. Either way, it's likely that Jesus is in Herod Antipas' era of rule, which was Galilee at the time. And Jesus calls Herod something a little puzzling. He calls him a fox. Now, that doesn't mean a silver fox, like myself or Fernando. Uh, this is a, a word with layers of meaning. Uh, Commonly, the idea of a fox was someone who was cunning, sneaky. But actually, interestingly, in Jewish culture, 
it also often referred to someone who considered themselves a lion, that is, they were powerful, but who was in reality lesser prey. Someone who was puffed up with ego and an you know, their own sense of their own importance and power. And that probably actually fits the context better. See, Herod had killed John the Baptist, and he thought Jesus was John resurrected, and therefore in Galilee, a threat to him in Galilee. And so he desired to have Jesus most likely killed as well. And Jesus' basic response is, well, you can tell him I'm going to carry on with my ministry, heading to the, healing the sick until my time is completed. I'm going to head to Jerusalem to die. You see, Herod might think he's a powerful lion, but he's actually just a fox. I'm going to carry on my ministry regardless of his intentions. And so we read on verse 34 and 35. This is the following. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem is the home of the temple. It's the place where God promised to dwell among his people. Jerusalem is representative of the whole nation of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. Notice Jesus' great compassion in the repetition of Jerusalem. It reflects the depth of his heart for his own nation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Despite the fact that she routinely kills the prophets and messengers, despite the fact that he's determined to go to her to die, his heart is filled with love for his people. He describes himself like being like a mother hen when there is danger to the chicks. She, she will spread her wings to hide them beneath her. And that is the heart of Christ. He can see the danger the people of Israel are in. He can see that their hearts are cold towards God. He can see that they're facing his righteous judgment and he longs to protect them. The question I've been thinking about reading this passage is, how does a hen gathering her chicks under her wings actually even keep them safe? Well, the answer is, she puts her body on the line to protect them. She says to the predator, over my dead body you will have my children. I will lay down my life before these children will be harmed. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus had come to do. And the great irony, however, was that it would be his very own children, the ones he'd come to protect who would kill him. But this was not a tragic accident of history. It was a despicable murder, yes. But accident, no. Jesus said, it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He was coming to die. And the people of God had long been so corrupt, they turned their backs on him. God had promised to dwell with them, to be their God, that they would be his people. He'd given them his temple, but time and time again, they rejected him. God's just anger was burning against his people. He would be right to destroy them for their wickedness, but God in his great mercy sent to them his son. 
He came eating and drinking among them, teaching on their streets, calling them to return to God. And such was their wickedness. They not only rejected him, they sought to have him crucified. Yet Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross, his great sacrifice on our behalf. He took the penalty for our rebellion and sin upon his shoulders. He died in our place. What amazing compassion. Now later in Luke's gospel, Jesus would break down and cry as he approaches Jerusalem. You know, the writer Dane Ortland comments on this. He says, twice in the gospels, we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. In one case, Jerusalem, and in the other, his deceased friend, Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. What drew his heart out to the point of tears? The tears of others. And so he stands at the narrow door and calls them to enter. He longs to gather them under his wings of protection, but they are unwilling. Friends, behold his compassionate heart. Now our Lord never promises to explain why he saves some and not others. But one thing is never in question. His heart is filled with compassion for the lost. You know, just by way of closing, I just wanted to end with a couple of brief applications for us from this passage. You know, maybe you're here this morning and uh, you're new to following Jesus or you're new, new to Jesus. Maybe you're, you're curious about the life of Jesus and yet the question of the exclusive claims of Jesus, it's bothered you. Jesus is absolutely exclusive. He's the narrow door. But his heart is huge and it's open to everyone. His call is to absolutely everyone. He is therefore both exclusive and absolutely inclusive. Christianity is the most diverse faith in the entire world. And so I want to encourage you in the lead up to Easter, take some time to investigate his compassionate heart. Maybe you want to join us in Alpha. Uh, it's an online course over six weeks where you can ask some of these questions. And we just invite you to come and join us on Zoom uh, on the April 26th. You can find it on our website. Or you can ask a friend who brought you. And maybe you want to read the Bible with someone just to spend time in one of the Gospels learning about Jesus and what he taught. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse uh, 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The Lord Jesus not only calls you to enter the narrow door, he stands at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And I invite you to open that door and come and get to know him. Secondly, for the rest of us, those that are here and we're following Jesus, I just want to encourage you, the right response in the lead up to Good Friday, this Friday coming up, is to spend some time reflecting on the heart of Christ. To see the compassionate heart of Jesus and to worship in thanksgiving. Um, this should compel us to, to not only examine his heart, but to share Jesus with others. How could we keep such a beautiful heart secret? I, I just want to challenge you to invite someone to take a step towards the one who stands at the narrow door and both also knocks at the door of our heart as well. 
Well, as we close, I want to end with just a, a story that I think summarizes the power of seeing this beautiful heart of Christ so, so perfectly, his compassionate heart for the lost. And that is for the uh, famous missionary Adoniram Judson. Uh, Adoniram Judson was uh, a missionary to Myanmar uh, who arrived in Myanmar on July or in July of 1813. And Myanmar at the time was hostile and it was an utterly unreached place. In fact, a few months prior to him going, William Carey, the famous missionary, had spoken to Adoniram and basically pleaded with him not to go to Myanmar. Such was the danger involved in him going. Myanmar at the time was what we would call in today's world a closed country. It was closed because of uh, a despotic government. It was closed because of war. It was closed because of frequent outbreaks of rebellion, uh, because there was no religious toleration in the country whatsoever. And all of the previous missionaries that had gone to Myanmar had either died or left. Judson went there aged 24 with a 23-year-old wife called Anne of 17 months. And he stayed there 38 years, going home only once in that entire period of 38 years, until his death at the age of 61. And he wrote this letter that I'm going to read for us as we close to Anne's dad in order to convince him to allow them to get married before they went. And this is what he writes. Prepare your heart, it's such a moving letter. Judson says the following. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her saviour from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. What a powerful picture of the way the compassionate heart of Christ can so capture someone. Would that same compassionate heart of Christ capture us this morning, church, that we would also be willing to offer our lives to him? You join with me in praying. Lord God, we want to thank you this morning so much for your beautiful word to us, Lord God. A word in which you reveal that you are so compassionate. That when you looked at the plight of a world that you had made, that had forsaken you, that had rejected you, that was cold and hardened towards you, you didn't stand at a distance, but you moved towards us in love. You sent your son who came and willingly laid down his life for us. Your son who stands at the narrow door and pleads with everyone passing by to come in. 
Lord God, I, I pray that that picture would just captivate us this morning, Lord God. I pray that we would see the tears in the Savior's eyes and and that for some of us it would lead us to worship. To just do the only thing we can, give you thanks and praise. I also pray that for some of us it would lead us to come to you and trust you. Maybe for the very first time. To port our trust in the one who proved that there was no price too great that he was willing to pay for us. Lord, would it be that this morning there wouldn't be a person walking out those doors who doesn't know something of your love for them. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.